Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have been doing well since I was on the air last, and I certainly have missed being with you guys, uh, but nonetheless, I'm glad to be back on the air. Um, since the time I was on the air last, I've um, had a lot of things going on, but all <clears throat> all of it for the right reasons. Uh, nothing bad, which is obviously a good thing, but I've also been um, having to... Um, how do I say it? I've, like all other episodes, regardless of uh, topic that we have discussed, uh, time is always uh, something that must be taken into consideration when preparing one podcast segment episode after another. Um, I am glad to be on the air because I wasn't sure if I was going to be on the air tonight. Uh, I thought worst case scenario it would be tomorrow, but nonetheless, I'm glad it's tonight. Uh, I don't know why I say it, but I do. But uh, what I do know is that um, I'm sure many of you uh, were um, shocked and stunned based upon what you learned from the uh, previous uh, podcast segment episode about that um, infamous American um, commander named William Hull. William Hull, um, you know, he had a a good strategy at first for wanting to... um, in terms of wanting to prevail, it's one thing to have a good strategy, but how you go forward in carrying it out when it comes to um, actual um, either actual combat or actual preparations, that could be a whole other story. William Hull didn't even put up a fight at uh, Fort Detroit. He, um, he surrendered. To me, he engaged in cowardice behavior. Um, and obviously it um, has a bad uh, impact on American morale. I mean, it's bad enough that Congress was very partisan in terms of not being 100% enthusiastic about declaring war on Britain. I mean, yes, Congress does not like the fact that Britain is engaging in acts of impressment left and right against American ships and forcing her crewmen uh, to fight um Along to fight on the side of the British against their own will, that's definitely one thing to be in opposition for, but when you are not totally unified in going to war against a formidable foe on the high seas, and you have um, a commander of the uh, Northwest Army, William Hull, who, yes, may have been um, a seasonal veteran of the American Revolutionary War, but given that times have changed, it's almost as if... Um, we're having to start all, all over from scratch. In other words, when we declared our war against Britain in 1775, it was really trial and error. You know, no two battles were alike. But even um, as America's young republic is just over 30 years old and just shy of 40 years old, come 1812, she's in another one of these trial and error situations. You've got people who are for war, and you've got people who are against war. It's not that those whom are against war, um, it's not a question of them so much whether or not they like England or not. It's really, to those individuals, the big question comes down to the following. Given that we don't have a strong standing army, And because we don't have a strong standing army, then how can we go head-to-toe against the most formidable uh, nation in the world? Yes, that same question arose um, 
Just before shots were fired around the world at Lexington and Concord, and even afterwards, but we should keep in mind that even in 1812, there is no George Washington. I mean, he's been gone for just over 13 years, but the bigger question that we have to find out, though, is whom are we going to have as commander-wise that could bear resemblance to George Washington? So in this uh, podcast segment episode, we're going to learn about uh, some new uh, commanders on the uh, American and British side. We are also going to learn about um, how things evolved from late 1812 into January of 1813. So we have a lot of ground to cover. So let's be prepared for what lies ahead. So let's fasten our seatbelts and uh, get this show on the road for another uh, podcast segment episode to Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, Fort Meigs in the War of 1812 by Larry L. Nelson. Here we go, folks, with our leadoff question. Which state was the first to call out for volunteers shortly after Congress had declared war on Britain? Which state do you all think may have been the first? Well, I can tell you this much. The state that was the first to call out for volunteers shortly after Congress had declared war on Britain um, borders Virginia. It's not West Virginia because there is no West Virginia just yet. The answer is uh, Kentucky. Yes, folks, believe it or not, Kentucky does border Virginia. Uh, You have to go out to far southwest Virginia. And what I mean by far southwest Virginia is you've got to go well west of Roanoke and uh, Salem. You have to go to places like um, Grundy, Virginia. You have to go to uh, other places such as... um, uh, Wise County, Lee County, Dickinson. Uh, you probably have to go into such places as uh, Pennington Gap, uh, Jonesville, uh, Ewing, most notably Grundy. But you've got to go uh, way, way out in southwest Virginia along the uh, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia line in terms of getting to Kentucky from uh, Virginia. So, yes, the answer is uh, Kentucky. Just over 2,000 men, including some of Kentucky's most prominent families, folks, answered to the call of duty. So we're not just talking about one group of people being like your average Joe uh, middling families that are um, answering the call of duty. We have um, a good number of um, prominent families. Many of them probably um, would have made their way west from Virginia into Kentucky, but they are answering the call of uh, duty, which I think is a great thing. It's a great way to say, okay, yes, we may have those whom are, whom are against war with Britain, but yet we need to show, um, we need to have a great, we need to have a good showing of people whom are willing to um, answer the call of duty and are willing to make sacrifices, even if there are those whom don't feel that war even if there are those who don't feel that war was the most uh, proper solution, given the current circumstances that the young republic is facing, especially knowing that the anti-federalists are not big on standing armies and have this philosophy that, uh, you know, militias can resolve all of the uh, conflicts, no matter how big or small they are. Wishful thinking. 
and I know I mentioned from a previous podcast segment about how um, in the latter years of the War of 1812 that uh, President James Madison, most notably in 1814 when the burning of Washington happens, that he will be uh, faced with probably one of the greatest rude awakenings behind this uh, war, second war for um, independence, that um, militias can no longer be um, used to put down um, conflicts involving um, foreign nations, especially those whom have uh, superior military forces, or any foreign nation for that matter, but most notably superior forces of a, of a foreign nation like uh, Great Britain. Now, um, August 15th to the 16th of 1812, over a two-day span, uh, Kentucky Army, the Kentucky Army gathered and formally introduced at Georgetown, and I want to say Georgetown is just on the outskirts of Lexington, and for, for those of you, you might be really blown away by this. Uh, I learned this a few years ago. You know, whenever I think of Lexington, I, I know there's a Lexington, Virginia, which is home to uh, Washington and Lee uh, College. Uh, Lexington is in um, the southern end of the Shenandoah Valley, uh, about 80 miles from Roanoke, and probably about 50 miles from where I went to college in uh, Bridgewater, which is uh, north of Lexington. But, uh, you know, usually the other uh, place that I think of that is named uh, Lexington is Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh, Lexington conquered, shots fired around the world on um, April uh, 19th of 1775. But as for uh, Lexington, Kentucky, how it got its name, what it had to do with the American Revolutionary War. There were settlers uh, living in uh, what we know as present-day Kentucky at the time that uh, shots were first fired um, against uh, British troops. But, of course, it was uh, the Kentucky Territory. But when settlers learned of what had happened uh, weeks after uh, shots fired had been fired around the world, they came up with the, the story goes that they came up with a solution or an idea on what to call their new town. And nonetheless, it was Lexington. And in remembrance of those whom were willing to, to um, make the uh, ultimate sacrifices, and firing the shots around the world and um, declaring uh, what would be an eventual uh, separation from the mother country. So, nonetheless, when you think of Lexington, Kentucky, you can think of how it, um, of where it derived from being from uh, Lexington, Massachusetts. So, anyways, yes, Georgetown, uh, Kentucky is uh, right outside of Lexington. So, uh, yes, this um, the Kentucky Army gathered and was formally introduced at Georgetown, to, and the army got paraded and checked over. Now, I don't know if there were any grand parades, but there were festivities um, in celebration for those whom were going to um, go out there and make the ultimate uh, sacrifices. Of course, yes, it's one thing to have um, a party and festivity, but even those don't last forever because... As we know, war is not a game. War is a serious matter, and not everyone comes home alive, and those who do come home alive are left with scars that don't go away overnight. But in the midst of their festivities, little did the Kentucky Army know that something else has already happened. 
What else has already happened, folks? Well, we have to remember that the news doesn't get around as quickly as it does in today's um, fast-paced electronic world. Fast-paced electronic world. Little did the Kentucky Army know that the Northwest Army had surrendered Forts Mackinac and Detroit in Michigan to the enemy, Britain. So little does the Kentucky Army already know that they are going to be facing some uphill battles. However, if there's anybody um, whom is willing to be prepared for what lies ahead and go at it full force, maybe it is the Kentucky Army. I think we need to dig a little bit further. Whom would command the Kentucky Army? How about Major General William Henry Harrison, whom um, nearly 30 years later would become America's ninth president. And as I mentioned from a previous podcast, um, that uh, William Henry Harrison was the last, um, he would become the um, last president whom was born as a subject um, to the British monarch. Because when William Henry Harrison was born in 1773, um, the, uh, the 13 colonies um, had still not officially declared their separation from England. Many of them were still wanting reconciliation. And to think William Henry Harrison was born the same year of that infamous Boston Tea Party, that's, um, you know, that, that's uh, pretty uh, remarkable. And to think that he would have been just shy of three years old when Congress finally declared its official separation from the mother country of England on July 4th of 1776. Sometimes we get fixed on a particular date and year, but yet we forget that how other people are impacted by it, or if they aren't old enough to to know what was going on, but to think that they were were alive um, when this other event or two was taking place, and how it did impact those whom were much older. So by the time Harrison's Kentucky Army arrived to the arsenal or depot along the Ohio River, news had finally arrived about General Hull's army surrendering at Fort Detroit. If you were a part of the Kentucky Army and even Major General William Henry Harrison, how would you feel learning of this news, knowing that General William Hull has surrendered his army to Fort to the uh, British at Fort Detroit. There's a lot of confusion, but yet there's a lot of anger. So when you have confusion and anger, it can either uh, weaken you or it can uh, make you, or you can take whatever confusion and anger there is and um, channel it in the right direction so that you don't um, perhaps make the same mistake that the previous officer made or go about actually putting up a fight against the enemy rather than uh, surrender and not even come up with any kind of valiant effort in defending the fort or uh, fortified post. So in the midst of the confusion and anger, the Kentucky Army is, has pressed forward into Ohio where they arrived come early September. All right, well... It's good to know that they've now arrived into Ohio come early September, but uh, what surprise did Indian forces have up their sleeves come September 5th of 1812? 
They partook, they partook in an operation by surrounding, or I should say, taking over Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now, Indiana is not a, an official state just yet, folks. But in 1812, she is what's under the Indiana Territory. But she's not far down the road from becoming an eventual state. So at this time, you know, you, what we're learning about with Indiana is to the south being Vincennes, um, north of Vincennes, uh, Prophetstown, where Tecumseh and his uh, forces were uh, defeated by uh, William Henry Harrison, and to the north being uh, Tippecanoe, uh, just on the outskirts of South Bend. But um, northeast of uh, South Bend, you would have uh, what's called Fort Wayne, Indiana. Well, here's a big um, un here's a big undertaking here. Now that um, Indian forces have um, surrounded Fort Wayne, how is the Kentucky Army going to proceed? Well, they are a well-disciplined army. They're far more disciplined than the army under General William Hull. They are very well disciplined, even in the midst of all the uncertainties currently unfolding. The Kentucky Army marched onward to Fort Wayne, and once they arrived, the siege was lifted, including all acts of existing combat. Folks, this was a nonviolent transfer of power. The Kentucky Army has, they're all intact. They didn't lose a person. Um, I think the Indians thought that, well, nobody's going to show up. But once they saw this big uh, group of um, forces, they decided that, well, maybe we better surrender this because we don't want to lose our men. I don't think the uh, Kentucky um, companies wanted to lose any men, but I think it's fair to say here that the Indians were outnumbered and probably decided to it would be better to give up this post. In other words, maybe focus more on Detroit and uh, Forts Detroit and Mackinac. Now, um, that uh, the good news now is that Fort Wayne is now in control, that the American forces, being the Kentucky Army, are now in control of Fort Wayne. So here we have something to uh, cheer about, but I have to wonder, is it going to last long term? September 17th of 1812, the U.S. government officially gave William Henry Harrison the lead, or I should say, head commanding post to the Army of the Northwest. His orders, his primary orders, though, ranged from retaking Detroit to reboosting re morale. And right now, I could say that morale has been reboosted, in part because American forces have now um, gotten a hold of Fort Wayne. It's out of the enemy's uh, possession, in this case being the Indians. Uh, did William Henry Harrison ultimately command Fort Wayne in um, did, did William Henry Harrison ultimately command Fort Wayne, Indiana, I should say? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, Fort Wayne was actually left in the hands of Brigadier General James Winchester. After departing Fort Wayne, General Harrison traveled westward to St. Mary's, Indiana, or well, to St. Mary's, which is in Indiana, on the outskirts of uh, South Bend, not far from the Indiana-Michigan line, uh, General Harrison went about uh, coordinating actions to help secure the western frontier. 
So he's doing a lot of what we call behind-the-scenes logistical planning. October 2nd, 1812, General Harrison came to a place known as Defiance. And and it still exists today, folks. Uh, Defiance is in Ohio, but it's located along the present-day Ohio-Indiana border. As a matter of fact, Defiance is located not too far from uh, Fort Wayne, if that gives you any indication of just how close Defiance is from not only from just the um, Ohio-Indiana line, but where, say, the uh, closest major city would be uh, in relation to Defiance. So, so, yes, General Harrison on October 2nd of 1812 arrives to Defiance, located along the Ohio-Indiana border, where he informed Brigadier General James Winchester that President Madison had given him the lead commanding position of the Northwest Army. Well, I guess if you're uh, Brigadier General James Winchester, you were probably hoping that it was going to be you that would have gotten the uh, lead position, but both men were able to put their differences aside, which is a good thing, especially in a time of war. You need to try to do whatever there is necessary to put aside differences, but sometimes that has always been easier said than done. Um, Now, uh, the bigger meeting between uh, Harrison and Winchester revolved around uh, larger issues like uh, retaking Michigan, most notably um, Detroit, and including Fort Detroit, to returning the people of the Michigan Territory back under American allegiance. And this also included, um, both men also agreed that invading Upper Canada was of um, great necessity, I should say, uh, great importance. So, yes, it's a good thing that um, both of these uh, men have put aside all personal differences and have focused on uh, greater issues that will um, impact, um, hopefully for the better, um, our young republic, given that we are in the midst of um, fighting a second war of independence from an economical standpoint. But yet, things haven't started off good, but... For Harrison and uh, Winchester, their goal now is to see just how much of a uh, reversal of fortune there can be. And there already is good news in that the um, Kentucky Army did um, get a a hold of Fort Wayne. So there is some good news to cheer about there. Um, Harrison's planned out invasion... I think this is very important, though, folks, because it's one thing to uh, plan out an invasion. It's one thing to have troops for an invasion. But I think it's fair to say that if you're go- that, regardless of your number of the number of troops that you have, you certainly want to have um, able-bodied, uh, well-able-bodied troops. But you want to have enough troops that you can split them up into um, into different uh, branches or wings. You don't want to concentrate everybody into one um, unit because if you concentrate everybody into one unit and you go into battle, I can only imagine the number of casualties or um, wounded troops there might be. Sure, you can get uh, heavy casualties or uh, heavy wounding of troops from one unit, but if you can make up for it and per other uh, detachments or regiments, uh, having additional regiments or detachments of troops could greatly um, it could greatly modify your chances of still coming through um, 
in terms of gaining a victory, even if there, if um, one component of your um, of your um, army um, corps is uh, severely um, what do you call it uh, injured in terms of uh, those lost and those wounded. So, uh, General uh, Harrison's um, planned out invasion was to involve um, different uh, combat arms of the army. So he's got to take um, directions like going from like east to west and then of course you've got the middle in the center so in the east uh troops are going to be coming from virginia and pennsylvania in other words he's going to have militiamen coming from both virginia and pennsylvania and of course given that there's no such thing as west virginia folks um those living in what we call present day west virginia given that it's part of virginia will be able to um have a what we would say a uh, shorter i don't know if i'd say a shorter but perhaps an easier accessible um route into ohio and those living in pennsylvania most notably what we call western pennsylvania like you know with places like pittsburgh and um i don't know maybe erie um or places on the uh, outskirts of pittsburgh that can make their way right into ohio so you have these uh, Virginia and Pennsylvania militias whose ultimate goal is to meet at a place called Worcester, Ohio. It's not spelled like Worcester, Worcestershire sauce, folks. Uh, Worcester, Ohio spelled W-O-O-S-T-E-R. And in case you're wondering where Worcester, Ohio is located, it's uh, located just outside of, present, outside of uh, Mansfield. So the Virginia and Pennsylvania militias were to meet at Worcester, Ohio, and go about escorting the artillery supplies to Upper Sandusky, where it would ultimately get set down to the rapids of the Maumee River. To the center, you have Ohio militia led by General Benjamin Tupper, whom were to take up supply posts along um, General William Hull's trail via the Black Swamp, including gathering supplies and fixed food amounts for the army. Uh, to the west, or what you call the left wing, it would be led by Brigadier General James Winchester. The left, uh, the left wing um, was to contribute uh, greater manpower through observations, exploring, examining. Really, it's, we're not talking about recreational ex exploration here, folks. We're talking about exploring um, and examining from a distance and perhaps nearby of any... Um, suspected uh, movement by the enemy being that of the uh, British. So it's not so much exploring and examining um, whatever British movements lie ahead, but how about halting any resistance? If you can halt enemy resistance along this route, then perhaps it will delay them from getting to, to their final spot, and it will also give you, uh, in this case the Americans, um, a little bit more momentum in being able to launch a surprise attack that would um, lead to further delays in uh, the British getting into uh, Fort Detroit in terms of uh, reinforcements. Now, as for the right wing, that is uh, led by um, General William Henry Harrison. Come October 15th of 1812, the completion of Fort Winchester in defiance was done. So it's, you know, we're, we're kind of thinking to ourselves, okay, why did General Harrison go to defiance? Yes, he, was, he went there to meet with General James Winchester, 
but something else had to have taken place that was important. Well, two weeks later, you got the completion of a fort. So here at Fort, at, uh, fort Winchester in Defiance, a plan for three wings was to take place along the Maumee Rapids in the early winter of 1813 after the winter freeze. This would allow the greater movement to take place of going into um, Michigan as well as uh, Upper Canada. And of course, um, you know, it's great that we have this plan. The bigger question is, is how well, how well can it be carried out even um, under um, circumstances, circumstances such as um, uh, winter-like conditions that could either make or break uh, the well-being of an army. Because you have to wonder, how many of these troops have uh, faced um, brutal um, conditions like, like conditions in the winter in a time of war? It's a good question. There are probably a handful, there could be a handful of men uh, from the Kentucky Army whom are whom I should say whom were uh, revolu whom were uh, veterans of the American Revolutionary War and knew and who knows some of them could have uh, been at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania during that uh, starving time. Um, uh, some of them could have been at uh, elsewhere uh, when the, uh, like say Trenton and uh, Princeton and all in terms of dealing with the cold weather. So I think it's fair to say that most of those uh, soldiers are not strangers to uh, inclement weather, but a handful of them have never really had any true war experience, and being out in uh, cold weather is going to come um, as a real uh, shock. Uh, did Brigadier General William Winchester face challenges as his troops of the Northwest Army's left wing marched onward to the Maumee Rapids? Yes. I'd be crazy to tell you no, but yes, Brigadier General William Winchester faced faced uh, some very um, unique challenges, and I'm not saying unique in this case in terms of good. I'm saying it um, as some uh, difficult challenges. Uh, one spot just a mile and a half below the entrance of the Aglaise uh, River on the north shore of the Maumee River lacked firewood. Well, you need... Uh, you need to have a fire going in a time of winter uh, to keep uh, warm, because after all, you know we don't have um, we you know we don't have modern day um, AC heater units at this time. So your best means of staying warm outside, uh, of course, you're not going to uh, do have a fire in your tent because if you, you start a fire in your tent to keep warm, uh, your tent's going to catch on fire. So with the lack of firewood. Uh, it, it's one thing to have a lack of firewood, but how about a lack of stable ground? The ground that they, um, at this first um, site for um, for encampment, the ground proved to be very marshy. So the encampment embarked upon for uh, roughly eight weeks. They embarked at a different encampment, but the encampment embarked upon for eight weeks saw provisions and supplies reach critical shortages to where even um, so-called government contractors weren't even willing to lend a hand. My gosh, uh, that I think that's very unfortunate that we have people even at this time who claim to be contractors or who actually were government contractors 
and yet they didn't want to give um, General William, Brigadier General William Winchester a lending hand in a time of, some people would say it may, maybe it wasn't a true moment of crisis, but to me, if supplies are reaching critical shortages to where you don't even know if half of your men might even be alive a day or two later, to me it is a crisis. You know, there are no grocery stores nearby, and even if you do go out and um, try to hunt down some um, game like deer or bear, but they're, you know those animals are hibernating, but whatever you find that you can kill, you might, it might be able to feed, say, between five or ten people, but it's not, it might not be able to feed the entire army. Uh, Brigadier General Winchester's troops are really hit the hardest by this all. Given they left Kentucky during um, midsummer, only to not have only to not have been provided winter clothing. You know we don't wear the same clothing all year round. You know we wear different kinds of clothing based upon the seasons. But Brigadier General Winchester's troops don't even have winter clothing. And it, if that's bad enough, some of his troops don't even have adequate shoes. In other words, they may have a pair of shoes, but the shoes have worn out. They've probably worn out to the point where um, the most uh, outer front of the shoe has come undone. Uh, the t- uh, a person's toe or a person's toes on on one of their feet could become exposed to uh, the bitter cold to where they could get uh, frostbite. So, you know, there's no uh, shoe store nearby, folks. Uh, you are lucky if you get provided with one pair of shoes, but there's no guarantee that'll last you uh, the whole year. And then who's to say that um, government contractors will live up to their promise to say, oh, you know, we've got another, um, I, I'll get another um, pair of, sh- not, I won't get so much another pair of shoes, but I'll make enough shoes to where I can get them here by a certain period of uh, time. Well, think about logistics and transporting the stuff. If you've got to transport it by water, and now all of a sudden the rivers could be frozen, how else are you going to get it there? So there's no Amazon, there's no FedEx or UPS. So even um, during this the start of this war, uh, logistics are really presenting a um, challenge. But whatever um, amount of food is left, folks, I mean, there is a severe food shortage for Brigadier General Winchester's troops. The rations in place, food-wise, are being consumed faster than versus getting replenished. So it's one thing to consume food, but if you can't replenish it on a 50-50 um, scale and, say, consuming food is 75% to 25% replenishing, then how can you expect your army to survive um, say a couple of weeks after or let alone a month from now. So each day presents a whole different series of challenges. Uh, whereas Winchester's troops were clinging on for survival in the midst of severe cold temperatures within uh, the Black Swamp, uh, how were the Pennsylvania and Virginia militia companies of the right wing faring? Well, both militia companies, for one, appeared to be better organized. Secondly, temperatures were opposite. Uh, they were more on the moderately uh, cold side. Both companies were met with bystanders whom had their full support for greater war effort cause. 
Uh, by the time both militia companies crossed into uh, Ohio at Mount Pleasant, which is located on the present-day Ohio-West Virginia line, they would eventually arrive at Chillicothe, Ohio's capital at that time, where, the state, where state legislature members provided the troops with essentials. See, wouldn't uh, Brigadier uh, General... Um, William Winchester's troops give anything in the world to have um, state legislature members be providing them with essentials? Heck yes. Something's not right there. But anyway, state legislature members in uh, Chillicothe, Ohio, are providing uh, Virginia and Pennsylvania militia troops with essentials from meats, game, wild game like fowls, turkeys, to pies, tarts, custards. Boy, I would have liked to have been a part of either the Pennsylvania or Virginia militia. I mean, yes, it's nice to receive these um, essentials, but there again, I would probably have to come to the realization that, well, it's nice that I'm getting these essentials now, but how long are they going to last? I mean, are members of the state legislature going to follow us uh, to our ultimate destination? Are they going to be there for for us if when we need more provisions again. So not long afterwards, after uh, Pennsylvania and Virginia militias have exited Chillicothe, winter's realities began kicking in. Yeah, see, the good times don't last forever. Journeying through Franklinton and Delaware, which are um, towns or cities right on the outskirts of uh, Columbus, Journeying through Franklinton and Delaware became very challenging for the Virginia militiamen as they entered a Lower Sandusky exhausted. Well, maybe it should be a reminder that when you are exhausted, it doesn't always mean that the weather has to be um, brutally hot outside. You can be exhausted even when it's very, very cold outside, to say the least. Uh, what had become of Brigadier General James Winchester's uh, troop forces uh, situation along the Maumee River uh, come mid-December of 1812? What do you think the situation might have um, come down to? Well, around December 16th, nearly all of the ration supplies within Winchester's army encampment um, became depleted. Okay, but depleted, it's virtually all gone. Nothing's left. So the um, ration supplies of Winchester's army encampment are now um, fully depleted, which included troops themselves, folks, threatening to revolt if provisions weren't obtained right away. My gosh, um, we're now seeing a, a potential breakdown in discipline. I thought these guys were pretty well disciplined, but now all of a sudden troops, I mean, now all of a sudden provisions, rations are, are, are gone. All that previous discipline and morale now doesn't exist. Well, folks, I have some very, very good news to report. This, to me, is good news that kind of comes with what we call a, um, maybe as an act of God, um, but it, um, but, it, but it couldn't have come at a better time. A day later, December 17th, 1812, stroke of fortune came about as 300 hogs arrived into Winchester's camp. 
The next following day saw arrival of flour, clothing, and other essential supplies uh, make their way. The arrival of these adequate supplies allowed Brigadier General Winchester's forces to move onward to the Maumee Rapids where they arrived January 13, 1813. It is very fair to say, folks, that had this stroke of fortune not happened, I don't believe that uh, Brigadier General um, Winchester's forces would have been able to have, ar have arrived uh, into the Maumee Rapids when they did, or who's to say that they might not have even gotten there at all. This, to me, is divine intervention. Accessibility to food along the northwest frontier was definitely lacking in abundance during the winter of 1812-1813. However, there was one exception. At a place called Frenchtown, present-day Monroe, Michigan, which is located, uh, as I probably said before, and I'll say it here again, it's located right along the present-day Michigan-Ohio line, not far from uh, Toledo. Uh, the British occupied um, Frenchtown, uh, through a militaristic force where they had gone about uh, confiscating villi the village's essentials for such items as grain, flour, livestock. And the French folks, I mean, Frenchtown, that should, if there's any indication why it probably would have been called Frenchtown folks, um, the French had lived in this part of uh, what we know as present-day uh, Monroe, Michigan, for quite some time. As a matter of fact, there was, a, um, there was a river there called the River Raisin, and historians know that, um, that the French uh, community of Frenchtown, uh, the French people in the community of Frenchtown, had uh, grown um, wine grapes along, the, um, along this river. I mean, after all, water isn't safe to drink, so you have to come up with uh, alternative methods for uh, drinking that are uh, a bit safer. So just think, you know, if you were a youngster living during this time, there is no such thing as a um, drinking law where you have to be, where you, where you, if you reach, say, the age of 21, then you are allowed to have um, alcoholic beverage. I do find it hard to believe that next year marks 40 years um, since the uh, drinking age was um, changed from 18 to 21. I don't know why I say that, but but I do. It's, uh, it is hard to believe, nonetheless. But anyways, um, the French armies, the French saw the Americans' presence as a means of liberation from British authority or control. Uh, January 16, 1813, Brigadier General Winchester ignored orders to stay put at the Maumee Rapids and chose instead to move onward north to Frenchtown. January 18th of 1813, with just shy of 670 troops, Brigadier General uh, Winchester's troops arrived into the vicinity of the River Raisin settlement with the primary objective for American forces to retake the Michigan Territory, including Fort Detroit. Whom was the current British uh, commander of uh, Fort Malden in the midst of the American uh, forces aiming to retake Michigan and Fort Detroit? His name was Colonel Henry Proctor. Colonel Proctor uh, was not surprised by the American troop uh, force 
or the American troop forces desires to retake the Michigan Territory as well as Fort Detroit. He went forward by calling out militiamen to, notify, to notifying all Indian allies. Colonel Proctor had been the lead commander of the 41st Regiment of Foot since 1802. The 41st Regiment of, of Foot, folks, it, it's an infantry regiment that dated back to the year 1719. And only one of our um, forefathers was alive by the time 1719 came around. His name was Benjamin Franklin. He would have been 13 years old. He was born in 1706. So to think um, that George Washington, he won't be born until 1732, but the uh, 41st Regiment of Foot, um, this infantry regiment, dated back to 1719. And what I also find unique about the year 1802 um, is that that's the same year that America's uh, first military academy was established, West Point up in uh, upstate New York along the Hudson River. Uh, what series of conflicts took place in, Michi in the Michigan Territory between January 18th to the 23rd of 1813? The Battles of Frenchtown, or what is known as the Battle of the River Raisin in present-day Monroe, Michigan. Brigadier General William Winchester's Kentucky troops were well on the advance, resulting in their forcing British troops and Native Americans into retreat mode from Frenchtown, which they previously held. The British and Indian retreat, folks, took place January 18th, and this retreat resulted in both the British and the Indians going as far as 20 miles away to Brownstown, Despite forcing the British and the Indians out of Frenchtown, Brigadier General Winchester's uh, forces did suffer some casualties. They did lose about 12 men. 12 men died, but that wasn't the, you know, it's one thing to lose men, and, you know, that can be a high number. In this case, it wasn't, which was a good thing, but the bad news is that you got 55 uh, wounded troops. It's one thing to uh, drive out the enemy, but if you see more men wounded and you have a, a fair amount who are, you know, who die, then you have to ask yourself, what was the price of it all? Was it really worth risking? And, it, and it's one thing to drive out the enemy and force them 20 miles into a retreat, but who's not to say that your army might be better off then you, who's not to say that your army will be in a better position, say, a week from now, or even a month later? Who knows just how soon the enemy could regroup? And, and if they do regroup soon, who's to say that you'll be ready in the event they launch a surprise attack? So, so now, uh, Brig now Brigadier General William Winchester has some other issues he's got to um, contend with. 300, being the total number of men, um, stayed put at the Maumee Rapids guarding the Army's provisions. Two days later, January 20th, Brigadier General Winchester agreed to strengthen his Army's posi position by building a defensive fortification above the encampment along the north side of the river. However, th we have a problem here. Construction, folks, does not begin right away. Why not? 
well, for one, we could say that maybe it's the season, but history has shown that uh, tr- that army forces have been able to uh, build um, forts or posts or some kind of um, fortification structure, even in the most unpleasant of circumstances via weather, like you know snow. Well, in this case, there is um, there are no tools and equipment. All of that's that all of that is uh, remained behind at the Maumee River. So we do have a problem here. Colonel Proctor learned of the American victory at Fort Malden, where, I mean, he was at Fort Malden when he learned of the American victory. He went about calling out every available regular, every militia man, or I should say militia company, including Indians nearby. He eventually acquired an army of around 1,300 strong, including munitions from three three-pound cannons to three small howitzers, which are um, short guns for firing shells on high paths at um, low velocity or speed. We go to January 22nd. uh, The British, or the 41st Regiment of Foot, arrived in the early hours into Frenchtown, undetected. Four days after they retreated, 20 miles to Brownstown, and now all of a sudden, four days later, look what they are doing. I, I think it's fair to say that maybe we've underestimated them. I wouldn't say it, it's a definite that we've underestimated. So, so yes, um, the British, uh, the 41st Regiment of Foot, under the uh, command of, um, of um, Colonel Henry Proctor, have... Um, arrived in the early hours into Frenchtown undetected, and they are within an eighth of a mile of the American line, of American lines. Not even a mile, just under a mile, folks, just an eighth of a mile. To me, this would be very, very uh, scary should a, a, a surprise attack come at any moment. And what if you're not on guard? What if you're not... At uh, manning your post, how are you going to respond? How are you going to be able to um, be prepared for what lies ahead? Did anyone from the American side take notice of British troops assembled into battle um, ranks or battle formation, uh, given how close they were to the Amer- to the American lines? Well, it just so happens that a guardsman, in particular, did. And this led to his shooting and killing a British soldier, resulting in others being alerted to what was unfolding. That's good right there. I mean, and that um, somehow the um, Americans uh, were able to be um, advised of what happened under the most uh, unexpected of circumstances. The Kentucky troops, though, um, they were in for the fight of their lives. They held their ground to the best of their abilities for nearly 20 minutes until the enemy onslaught uh, kicked in, leading to a, a retreat that that was not a uh, proper formal retreat, a retreat that, um, that just became uh, really one that was every man for himself, a retreat that... Um, that really could not was not able to be coordinated um, ahead of time. You know, sometimes you, you know history has shown that sometimes uh, retreats have been um, have been well coordinated. Other retreats have not been uh, well coordinated to where um, 
It has often been come down to a matter of make or break for an army's survival, not just short-term, but long-term. So this retreat became one that was uh, every man for himself. Colonel Proctor's attack was launched in the morning, uh, dawn, on January 22nd. His attack was so... um, It was a profound attack. Why a profound attack? How about 397 American soldiers killed? How about 547 being taken as prisoners? So you do the math, 547 plus 397, uh, the answer is um, 944. I did the math not long ago, 547 into 944. 65% of Brigadier General um, William Winchester's uh, troops were taken as prisoners. 65%. Just over a quarter of his army is killed. 35%. It's hard to replace numbers like that, folks. You just can't call up um, Washington, uh, D.C. and say, Hey, you know, uh, tell Mr. President that I need... um, another 2,500 troops as soon as possible to fill the missing void, considering that I just lost over a quarter of my army. It it doesn't work like that. Not in in the uh, 19th century, to say the least. Colonel Proctor, on the other hand, has demanded that Brigadier General um, Winchester surrender his remaining American troops. But Winchester has refused. This is pretty bold on Winchester's part. Winchester, to me, I'm not sure what his thinking was here, but on the one hand, I did come to the realization that at least he wasn't doing what William Hull did. William Hull never put up a fight. Brigadier General Winchester has put up a fight, but he's obviously stuck between a very bad uh, rock and a hard place. Winchester offered instead to send a letter to George Madison, whom was the commander of the American left wing, requesting the surrender. Now, why would you ask another commander to do that? That beats the, um, that baffles me. Madison, he read the letter under a truce flag, meaning a, a, a peace flag where, the, where no uh, hostilities are taking place. But George Madison is literally stunned by the request of, um, William, of William Winchester he was stunned because, largely in part because he's got um, strong troop numbers. He he has lost some troops, but they are very mi- at a very minimal number. He hasn't lost anything compared to what William uh, Winchester has lost. But yet, if George Madison is facing a, a shortage of something, it's not men. He is facing a shortage of supplies, mostly ammunition. So if you were facing a shortage of uh, ammunition, do you think it would be wise to continue with the fight? Probably not. So, because there's a shortage of supplies, not only in uh, William Winchester's camp, but that of George Madison, George Madison, uh, William Winchester surrendered. And because he surrendered, George Madison in turn requested protection from Indians. In other words, because we've surrendered, I request that no Indians 
harass me or my troops, or harass those whom are wounded, recovering from their wounds. So George Madison, yes, he's requested protection from Indians for those wounded American troops whom are going to have to stay behind. Yes, believe it or not, folks, there are uh, wounded troops that are going to stay behind because they are simply not well enough to go all the way north into Canada into um, Fort Malden, which is in Amherstburg. Uh, I think I told you all the other night when I was on the air that uh, my wife and I did get to visit Amherstburg, and we saw Fort, got to tour Fort Malden, and that was uh, incredibly well worth doing. I strongly recommend you all visit there. For those of you who haven't uh, been um, into that part of Ontario, uh, southwest Ontario uh, and all. But um, nonetheless, though, uh, Colonel Henry Proctor did agree to Madison's terms and in ensuring that uh, that uh, those whom were uh, wounded uh, American troops would get protection from the Indians, including Amer- wounded American troops staying behind to ensuring safe entry into Fort Malden. While some American prisoners did make a safe exodus to Fort Malden, others were not so fortunate, folks. A, a day later, January 23rd, after the British and Indian counterattack had prevailed, multiple American prisoners at Frenchtown were mowed down by Indians. These uh, American prisoners were, um, were recovering in makeshift buildings only for the structures themselves to be set ablaze, in other words, to be set uh, afire, with prisoners inside, folks. Now, I shouldn't... um, I know that uh, relations between Indians and settlers were not always the best, and they both... Both sides did commit some terrible atrocities to one another, but the Indians uh, massacred um, troops... In other words, they didn't even give them um, a proper right to quarter in terms of surrender. They did not even give troops proper rights behind what was going on. Uh, Basically, a lot of British officers said, well, we can't be held accountable for how, um, how the Indians act, but we'll be accountable for what we do on our end, but we just can't control um, the Indians, even though they are our allies double-edged sword to say the least, but nonetheless um, a terrible incident occurred at Frenchtown uh, in that multiple American prisoners folks were mowed down by Indians in makeshift buildings only for the structures to be set ablaze with the prisoners inside. Historians now know that roughly about a hundred prisoners were dead, massacred, only to die by um, deliberate, uh, what we would know in today's time as a deliberate act of arson or a deliberate act of um, of murder, rather, I should say. Kentucky, folks, as we learned early on, uh, the state that um, answered the call um, shortly after Congress had declared war on Britain, uh, the state that really uh, led the call of duty, being Kentucky, saw uh, saw the highest number of men uh, die at Frenchtown. Yes, you had Virginia and um, um, Pennsylvania militiamen make their way into Ohio, but the largest number of men whom died were from Kentucky. A rally cry evolved, and it was called Remember the River Raisin. 
when I'm on the air again next, uh, folks, I'll tell you a little bit more about that rally cry. But thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Uh, take care for now, and stay safe.